Thanks for tuning in to your day off podcast, hosted by your boys, Corey and Tony. I think by the end of today, I might have another best friend. They're committed to making you fall in love with the hair industry, one podcast at a time. Uh, you're going to grab a lot of information. Yeah, you're going to learn a lot. Presented by Hair Industry and powered by Schedulicity. Without further ado, should we do? Ladies and gentlemen, this is it. Your day off podcast will begin after a word from our sponsors. What if payment looked this good? And your tips looked even better. Better yet, what if you could do it all by phone? Norm, payment by text for small businesses. Barbers, stylists, massage therapists, facialists, you name it. Available now for everyone on Schedulicity. Norm, the modern way to pay. My name is Corey, and of course, I'm sitting with my best friend, Tony. What's up, bud? What's going on, brother? Uh, one, two, three. Dude, I'm super excited to be back in studio because we've spent the last four or five weeks on the road, which is really awesome, but it's also kind of nice to be home a little bit. It really is. And, and I didn't realize, you know, it's sort of like when you don't work out for a while and you're like, man, I'm out of shape. When you don't do shows for a while and you come back, it's like, man, I am exhausted, dude. Dude, we just did like an incredible show run. Um, first off, first and foremost... I'm ecstatic that we're back in like showtime, right? Like I'm ecstatic that the industry's getting back together. We're meeting in person and like we can get, we can, we can high five and hug. Yeah. Absolutely, dude. And uh, it, it takes a lot out of you to, to travel every weekend and your late nights, early mornings. And uh, it, it, but it, it, being together made up for all of the exhaustion at the end of the yes. at the end of the week. So I, it was perfect. And I, I've said it once. I've said it a thousand times. You know, thank you to our families because they always get the worst end of us, especially if we're like between two weekends that we're traveling. You know, they get they get the weekends where we're trying to like build back up, build that energy back up. You know, so but they what I'm saying is we don't have any energy to give, so they get the, <laughs> they get that as as we uh, as we get back into it. Yeah, well, they'll, they'll take what you have left, and you know, and that's very gracious of them and yeah, uh, you know doubt. but anyways it, it's it's great good to be back good to be back good to be back and i feel we feel back we feel like we're starting to feel some normalcy hopefully uh we said hopefully 2021 gave us some normalcy but i think now we're looking at 2022 for for for, for some normalcy and it's starting to taste that way a little bit just a little bit just a little bit that's awesome dude I'm excited about today. I'm as excited about today as when we first talked to our CPA, Michelle Cook, and the first time that we got to talk to her, because Michelle, um, uh, as a CPA, she came on the podcast, and we had so many questions about our business, and about CPA, and and about accounting, and about bookkeeping, and about, and Michelle was that... She was that outlet for us, um, so we could so we could share that information. But what makes it special is that she was a hairdresser. She was a and hairdresser. Today's guest, you know, she was a hairdresser. And well, I'm not going to do that. She's like she's like a president. Like she is a hairdresser, but now she has a different job. Right, but it's it's pretty cool when you find these rare gems in the industry that can really just just blow your mind and really help you in the industry and not to give it away, but you know, uh, it's give it just, away, give it away. Yeah. It away. I mean, she's just, I can't wait to, to just dive into, uh, how she can uh, help us and all the great things that she's up to. That is absolutely cool. So today we are speaking to Rihanna green. Um, if that name isn't familiar in about six months, you're going to remember that you heard her here first. Um, Rihanna was a hairstylist. Um, we'll get into her story a little bit, but she was a hairstylist for quite a while for like six or seven years. Um, and then somehow, some way, I'm sure we'll get into the conversation, but, um, she went to law school and she, uh, she became an attorney and, and, you know, she's, I hate, the, I hate the word giving back, but she's kind of giving back to the industry by helping us better protect our businesses or better. If you need a lawyer, you need to talk to somebody that that's been in the industry because I, I think, you know, hairstylist talk is hairstylist and, and, and she, and she's been in it. She's been intimately in it because again, you know, she's got six or seven years under her belt. Behind right. The chair. Just like Michelle. I mean, how rare are you going to find an attorney that it, 
is a hairdresser. That is a hairdresser, right? And so she she does speak our language. She understands us, and she understands what we need as hairdressers. Our unique challenges, yeah, in order to protect ourselves. I I, I absolutely love it. So um, you know, let's let's go ahead and bring her in, and like we'll kind of get into her story, and then I promise you, she has a lot more to uh, to share in the future. So so Miss Rihanna Green, attorney at law esque hairstylist. What welcome to your day off. Hey, good morning. How are you guys? We are amazing. Uh, I, I'm like I said. I'm super excited for this conversation. Yeah, thank you so much for taking the time to come on our podcast. No problem. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to share what I know about the industry. What you know, stylists, people in the hair industry, beauty industry, kind of what they need to be focused on and aware of, and just kind of have that conversation that's not being had. All right. Before we get deep into all that, uh, tell us. You know, where did you grow up? Where are you from? Yeah, I'm from Southern California originally. So I grew up in kind of a small town outside of LA. I always tell people I'm like LA adjacent. If you don't know um, California at all, you are definitely not going to know like what little hometown I'm from. But if you are, I start like LA and go smaller and smaller. Um, So I grew up in California. I then like went to school um, in Northern California and went to Oklahoma, went to Atlanta. I've kind of been all around. Where'd you go? You went to, when you said you went to school, that's, you went to college? Yeah. So when I went to college, I went up north to uh, University of California, Berkeley, and got my bachelor's there, uh, which is kind of funny. It's a total different type of environment than Southern California. I know we're all California, but it's no, NorCal and SoCal are very different. So, so you went to college at Berkeley, but I mean, was hair always been on your radar? I mean, how did you become a hairdresser? So when I was in high school, we had what's called the regional occupation program, right? And so it was for people who didn't really want to go to college. They wanted to trade. I, at one point in time, was like, I don't want to go to college. I definitely don't want to do anything after college. I'm going to do hair. Uh, And I went to beauty school while I was doing that. So you just paid like a lab fee. Um, and you got to do your hours while you were on campus. It was like elective credits. So at 16, as soon as I could take my manicuring license exam, I took that, got licensed and then continued on. So I didn't really like nails that much. So I was like, no, I want to do hair. Like I want to be able to color, cut, do all that. So I continued on. And then at 17, got licensed for hair and was like, this is what I'm going to do. And then my brother was like, you should just go to college. Like, you know, you're really smart. You could do it. And I was like, I don't want to be in school that long. I just, I'm just going to do hair. You can make a lot of money. I can make my own hours, that type of thing. Um, but I just kind of kept dabbling, you know, taking classes um, full-time in college while I was still doing hair. And then I just kind of never stopped hair and Cosmo took me all the way through undergrad and law school. Wow. What well, when you said you wanted to be a hairdresser, how did you, I mean, you just said, you mentioned your brother, but how did your, uh, your family react to that? So my mom's huge in education. She was a third grade teacher for a really long time. Then she became a principal of an elementary school. So she's big on education. She's like, you know, go get your education. You know, if you want, you can do so many things once you have a degree, you know, that type of thing. My brother is big in education too. He's a doctor now. So he's like, you know, he's been in school for a really long time. And he told me one time, he said, the time's going to go by no matter what you do. So, you know, if you want to be a lawyer, if that's like on your radar, just do it because the time's going to go by like four years for undergrad. It's going to go by whether you're working hair full time for four years or whether you're in school, like the time goes by. And I thought that was great advice. Um, And so that kind of led me to continue to go to school and get it done. That's amazing. So you did hair all the way through. Um all the way through college and in law school. Yeah. Which was really cool for me because it was one of those jobs, you know, or careers where you can work your schedule, how you want to work it. And that was big for me because there were classes I needed to take stuff that I wanted to do on campus. And so being able to make my own schedule, as opposed to somebody making a schedule for me and having to work school around it was, was huge for me. Did you work in a salon or like a suite? I worked at a salon for, so I started off, my very first job was at Mastercuts. And then after Mastercuts, I did Supercuts and then I did sports clips. And then I did commission at like a salon and day spa. Um, so I've kind of done it all. I've never rented 
a booth or a suite because I was always in school and I wanted like my clientele to be already established through either the salon or the company or whatever, you know. Did, did any of the, the the salons that you worked at have issues with the hours you wanted to work? No, everybody was really, was always really good about my schedule. I would tell them at the beginning of the semester, kind of what classes I was taking and when I was available. Uh, I did a lot of evening shifts, you know, when I was working at sports clips, I would do like the six to nine, you know, work all day, Saturday, all day, Sunday, that type of thing. That makes sense though. I mean, you know, at least you have like three months, right. To kind of like do your schedule and you, you know, once you got your schedule, you could, you could, you could book it out for three months, Yeah. you know? So did you, did you always want to go to law school or was it like after college, you're kind of like, I think I can do this law school thing. I've always been a really good arguer, right? They always say like, Oh, you should argue, you should go to law school. <laughs> right? like, they, rap about it. It. They, they do all that. Right. So <laughs> I've always been really good at, talking, getting my point across. You know, I remember in high school one time, I was just telling somebody this story. In high school one time, I got dress coded for sandals. You know, you can't wear flip-flops. And the principal told me, um, I need you to sign this, you know, this uh, warning. And I was like, I don't want to sign a warning. He's like, it's just a warning. And I said, yeah, but next time I'll be in pass, you know, like student alternative to suspension or whatever. And I said, you should enforce it like equally across everybody. And there are so many girls out there in flip-flops or don't enforce it at all, but don't like be selective about it. And I like gave him this whole argument. Right. And then he looked at me and he said, you know what, Miss Green got a very good point, you know? And so I didn't have to sign anything. I actually didn't get dress coded. Um, and so I just think it's always kind of been in me. <laughs> the only prerequisite is that you can argue well. Did you, yeah. Did you, so were you part of the debate class and you get. Yeah. In junior high, I actually was in high school. I was so ready to get out of there that I was like doing what I needed to do to, um, I graduated a year early. So I was like in, in school, taking college classes, doing the Cosmo thing. I was not really doing like that many extracurricular activities because I was busy with what I had already set up. You were debating your way out already. I was debating my way out. I was like, mom, can I graduate a year early? She was like, okay, but you know, so yeah, I was debating to make a move. That's amazing. <laughs> so, uh, did, so after law school, you, uh, did you work at, did you work at, I don't know, like a law firm, like a big firm? Did, did, did you do those million hours a week? Yeah. So after law school, I actually, when I was waiting for my results, they take a long time in California. I'm licensed in California and Georgia. So I took California in February. I didn't get my results back until June. And I don't think I got sworn in until July. So there's also like another big gap of time where I was working at um, the salon and spa doing hair. And then after I took the California bar in February, in July, I took the Georgia bar and took the Georgia bar immediately and then got results and moved to Atlanta. So I moved to Atlanta and started working at, um, at that time, the prosecuting office, like I was a prosecutor for five years. Um, and had a really good time doing that. Actually, it was fun. Lots of cool cases. And then after that, I was like, I'm ready to switch into civil litigation. And so I went to work at a big insurance company and that's kind of where I started seeing a lot of salon cases. And then, you know, I still have friends in the industry. I'd be sitting in their chair. I'd be hearing like complaints about what they've got going on with clients and policies and things like that. And that's really what like merged the, the two things for me. Wow. What? So when you got in, so when you're having those conversations with your friends or the stuff that you were seeing at the, at the law firm, like what was there, was there a common like issue? Meaning like we really need to address this one thing. Cause this is affecting everybody. So when I was at doing insurance defense, it would just be more, I started getting salon cases that were, you know, like one case, for example, guy went to go get a pedicure uh, the water was too hot. He ended up getting blisters. He had, um, you know, a pre condition, he had diabetes. So the blisters didn't really heal very well and they got infected and he had to have surgery on the split. Right. So then that was a very big policy demand on the insurance company, you know, through the professional liability insurance and things like that. And so when I started seeing those cases and some cases would come through and they would be the insurance company, the company I would work for wouldn't even cover them on their policy because they weren't using the proper consent forms or they weren't doing like the proper patch test if they're doing hair color or whatever it is. And then they would invalidate the policy. So then you, you're being sued by this client. And now the professional liability insurance that you're paying into 
isn't even going to cover you because you're just not doing a couple things that's really easy to do that, you know, as hairstylists or barbers or whatever, we have a million other things that we're doing and the paperwork kind of will slack sometimes because you're busy behind the chair. So I just always thought that was like super interesting. Wow. And then now they're being sued personally. Yeah. So they're being sued personally. And then, you know, you pay into your professional liability insurance for situations like that, but there are all those loopholes. So you didn't do a patch test on this color and all the girl's hair fell off because she had, you know, box dye on it or something. Right. Or you didn't correctly do um, an intake form and find out what other, you know, pre-existing conditions they have, like the diabetes example, you know, all that kind of stuff affects whether or not your insurance carrier is going to defend you in case of a lawsuit. That's kind of cool. To like, so you're here, you are working uh, on these insurance cases and you're like, you know what, these insurances, uh, you know, you have all these hairdressers paying into uh, these insurances and they're finding a way out. So you're kind of going after those guys to make sure that, you know, that the hairdressers is, is more protected and, and better suited to, to, to be able to handle something like that. That's, I mean, my hat's off to you and thank you so much. Cause we need uh, people like that because obviously, you know, a lot of those clauses as insurance, uh, we think we're getting one thing. And if we're, if we're not, uh, lawyers, you know, we might overlook or miss something. And then next thing you know, we lose everything. Right. And it's one of those things where if you're already trying to do what you're supposed to do, some people are operating without professional liability insurance, right? So that's like its own hurdle. But then if you are operating with professional liability insurance and general liability insurance, you're doing it because you want to be protected. So then to find out that you're not protected in those instances because of the fine print, it's just so unfair and something that can be easily fixed, you know, or put into place when you're checking in clients, when you're sending out confirmation, emails, text, whatever. All right, dude. I, I was going to say, if I, so if I was a hairdresser and I'm about to sign a contract with a, a professional liability insurance, what, what, could I hire you and have you review it and then make me aware or you can ch- or make changes or, or would you like, cover up those loopholes or I don't. So big insurance policies are pretty standard, right. And what they like are going to require you to agree to. But the good thing about having an attorney review, anything is you're going to be like, okay, so this is your policy. This is kind of what's laid out for you. Make sure you're doing X, Y, and Z so that your policy is in effect and that, you know, you're not doing anything that's going to make your policy become invalid. So Rihanna, so, I mean, you're talking about the insurance and stuff, but, but are we protected under our own LLC or, or like Tony said, like they're coming against you personally, or are they coming against the LLC personally? So it depends if you have an LLC, that's one of my number one pieces of advice for anybody in the beauty industry, any business owner, really, right. You want to protect your personal assets, Um, as opposed to your business assets. You want to keep them separate. So the only way to do that is, you know, an LLC, a corporation, things like that. And lots of people are operating just as themselves. So as Rihanna Green, the hairstylist. So in that situation, you're operating as a sole proprietor. So anything that you own, if you get hit with a lawsuit or anything like that, is up for grabs. So if you've been saving 20 grand, 30 grand, to buy a new house in California, you need a lot on that down payment, right? If you're saving for that uh, and you get hit with a lawsuit, it can be gone. If you have an LLC and you get hit with a lawsuit, then it's only going to be the money that's available from the business. So your personal assets can't get attacked in that way. So that's why LLCs are super important for any business owner, really. But that's kind of the difference. So you get sued under, you know, your LLC would get sued and not you as the person. And that's how it kind of protects your assets. Protect your ass. So, um, so if I work for a commission salon, um, do I need an LLC or is that just for people that are like independent? So if you work for a commission salon as an employee or as an independent contractor, as a, well, let's say you're a W2. Okay. Then you are going to be covered under the, company or the salon that you work for as that like employee employer basis um, for the most part, you know, like if they, if something happens, they're going to sue the salon, they might uh, name you as an individual, but for the most part, it's going to happen under the salon. And if you have it 
good in your employee contract with like indemnification clauses and things like that, you should be pretty protected. So uh, not to put words in your mouth, but if you're a 1099, so if you're not collecting a W-2, you should definitely have an LLC to protect your assets. Absolutely. If you are just, you know, Rihanna, the hairstylist that is running a suite, is running a booth, is doing anything like that, you need an LLC to see what CYA for sure. And can you help us uh, with the LLC? I can help with the LLC in California or Georgia where I'm licensed. But what I tell a lot of people is most of the states are really easy on how to go about getting your LLC. Like if you go to the Secretary of State's website, it's pretty easy. Georgia, you can do in like five minutes, 10 minutes. And so even in Georgia, when people are like, hey, will you help me with your LLC? I'm like, I will. And I could take your money. But it is super easy. Like, try it first if you're having problems, especially if it's a one-person LLC and it doesn't require a lot. When you get into the partnerships and you really need things in writing, it's a little bit more, you know, difficult. Yeah, you need someone to help you with that. But if it's just you, one person, it's pretty easy to do it yourself. That's pretty good to know. I know in the state of Maryland, it's pretty easy, too. I think, you know, we can cost you like 100 bucks or something in five minutes on the internet. But, yeah, it's pretty simple to do. It's pretty easy. And so I'm like, I don't want to... I can take your money and do it, but <laughs> save it, use it for something else. Like I'd rather you put that money towards a trademark or good contracts or, you know, something else because you can do that, that yourself for the most part. All right. Let's talk trademark because we've, we've been really mega confused about like how to do trademarks and, 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 and uh, what confuses me about the trademark is we made up a word and, and, and like hair industry, right? Hair industry is a made up word. No one's ever made it up before for the, the best of our knowledge, you know, but then where it's protected, where it's not protected, you know, is all, is all kind of confusing too. Like, you know, we can't just protect it because it can only be protected. Well, you clarify, it can only be protected under different windows. Right. So you can only own your, so what a trademark does is it gives you exclusive ownership rights to the name or the logo or whatever you're trademarking in connection with the goods or services you're using, right? So to make it simple, um, hair industry, if you're using that in connection to your podcast, you can register it for your podcast. You guys have hats on, right? If you're using it in connection to apparel or different types of, you know, hats, footwear, things like that, you would register it in connection to that. If you are using it for a salon or a barbershop or whatever, you would want to register it for that. So the best example of this is Dove Chocolate and Dove Soap, right? Same name, they're in different lanes, so they can coexist. But Dove Chocolate can't go after Dove Soap, Dove Soap and be like, hey, you're using my name. Because it's like, yeah, I am, but we're not even on the same highway. I'm in a totally different lane than you, and so it's okay. So if a person wants to protect their brand name or their business name in relation to everything they're doing with it, they have to register it in those different classes. And it's super expensive. It is $350 a class right now to register. Um, so if you have multiple classes you're going to register in, you know, three, four, five. Yeah, it gets it gets up there. And that $350 is what you paid to the USPTO, which is the United States Trademark and Patent Office. Um, and so that goes to them. And of course, there are attorney's fees if you're going to have an attorney do it for you and things like that. So it can get expensive. So if I wanted to say, you're saying if I wanted to create Nike chocolate, I can create Nike chocolate. Good luck. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> so there's not a Nike chocolate, right? But it kind of depends on if the goods or services are related in that, in that example, not really related, but if you try to use Disney for anything, no way you're ever going to get Disney trademarked, right? It doesn't even really matter if it, because they just kind of bleed over into everything. But yeah, under that example, Nike doesn't have a chocolate. It's not food related, right? So probably would be able to do it that way. Gotcha. Huh. Yeah, try. Not that I would try. I mean, yeah, yeah but yeah. Here, here's, here's the problem is, is that like a, Nike or Coca-Cola is they would fill you up with so many lawyer fees. You couldn't keep up. You, you'd have to like back you out. Right. They've got the big bucks, right? So they can do that. And what I say is trademarks are expensive. Yes. Um, I'm not going to deny that they're not expensive. 350 a class, depending on how many classes you have, that's expensive. 
But, but, even, hold on, but hold on, even the classes, like you said, it's not like, like when we looked into it, it's not just like hats, but we had to say, okay, we're going to do a hat, we're going to do a shirt, but like it doesn't include socks, right? So if we wanted to do socks, that's another, you know, it's not, so it's not just like a broad, like this is clothing or this is, or this is media. Like we had to specifically say like, you know, we're only protected in the podcast space. We're not protected in like, you know, uh, TV. Like if we came up with a hair industry TV, like we, that would be a different classification altogether. So it's not as easy is just it's it's not as broad it, it's so specific and it's 350 dollars, like she said just for that but you know not put an attorney's fee on top of that right the one thing i will say though is and and they're expensive to register in the different classes but trademark infringement lawsuits or just you know protecting your brand after the fact when people are already now like your name is catchy now they want to use it on stuff like going through all of that is so much more expensive so it's just kind of like if you're going to invest in your brand, in your business, it's a necessary expense. Otherwise, you're building a brand that you are renting, like you don't own it at all. So, well, here, let me back up a little bit then. So, again, to the best of our knowledge, we made the word up, right? So anybody that would use it f moving forward, we have like a track record that we've been using it for five years, right? Do we have any protection just because we've been using it or the first person to register in a space that we're not registered in, they have the right to it or, or do we tricky. have an argument? So it's tricky. So you have common law rights. So you have the common law rights, you have the federal rights, the common law rights are going to be like, you've been using it. You've been in use with your podcast with other stuff, but it's not registered federally. But what would happen is if somebody went on today and, you know, put it in for podcasts, the person that's going to be examining it. So when you file a trademark registration or the, I mean, when they file the application to get registered, an attorney at the trademark office is going to look at it. But what they look at when they do their search, they're not going to look at podcasts. They're not going to look at, you know, domain names, anything like that. They're going to look at what's in the federal database. And so if you don't have a trademark in, there's nothing conflicting with it at that point. So they could get a trademark for your name. And then you guys have been using it first. So you have common law rights, but now you have to go into this whole litigation process or try to get their That's registration canceled because you were using it first, but didn't go get the registration first. Does that make sense? hundred percent. Yeah. And like you said, it's going to cost you a whole lot uh, more money to fight that, to prove that your common law is uh, more, you know, existed before whatever, whenever they re registered it, it's going to be quite expensive. Then you got to get even more attorney's fees. You have to pay litigation costs, you know, cancellation proceeding costs, all that kind of stuff uh, on the back end, even though you've been using it first, just because you didn't file for that application first. Mm. That makes total sense. Well, it makes total sense and it's total bullshit at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is. Yeah. Especially because I tell people not to wait on the trademark. I know when you're a new business owner and you're starting out on things, you want to put money in other places. Lots of times people want to put money in things that are going to make them money back in return pretty quick. Right. So you'll go out you might hire a coach to kind of help you grow and scale your salon, your barbershop, whatever. You might spend five grand, 10 grand on that. You might go and get a dope website made that might cost you two grand, three grand. People are expensive on websites. I, that's a whole nother story, right? But <laughs> you might spend all this money on branding, on scaling, on all of that. But then when it comes to a trademark, you're like, oh, I don't want to pay three grand, four grand. But the cost of not doing it is so much greater. It doesn't really cost you that much if you don't have a nice website. It's not going to, you know, be the end of the world if you don't get that coach right away. But if somebody trademarks before you and you have to spend 20, 30,000 just to try to get it canceled, let alone if it doesn't get canceled right away and those costs just keep increasing, it's one of the main things you should do. Mm, love that. Yeah. So how do, um, like there's a, it's my friend's website. I mean, my friend's salon. So I, I'm not shitting on them by any means, but like there's a Bella hair salon in every, in every town and in, in, in every state and every whatever, like how do, how does that work? So technically if nobody has Bella hair salon registered, right, they could file for a application to get the registration. The problem is going to be, there's going to be tons of people that have common law rights to it. So after you file your application and the trademark attorney examines it, says, okay, nobody else is federally registered, they do what's called a publication period, which is 30 days. 
And anyone during that 30 days who claims to have superior rights, you know, so in your guys' case, if somebody tried to register it and you were made aware of it, you have a 30 day period to oppose it. Um, And then during that time, you can try to get the registration to not go through because you're in that opposition time. The problem, though, is in a case like, you know, Bella Hair Salon, where they're everywhere, even if you get registered and even if no one fights you on the common law rights right away, just even sending out cease and desist letters or trying to get people to stop using it is going to be hard because they're everywhere. It's diluted. You know, like the brand name is diluted, things like that. Nice. Because I think I think Symmetry, they did it in all 50 states, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, really? I think so. I think that they uh, they look for protection in all 50 states. Wow. Which uh, that's kind of that's all kind of crazy. What are some? Oh, other- let, sorry, I don't mean to cut you off. I just wanted to say though, you said all fifty states. So I just wanted to break down a difference for anyone listening. You know that there are federal trademarks and state trademarks. So your federal trademark is the one that I've been talking about. You know the three fifty class that's going to cover you in all of the states. You know in U.S. territories, and then state trademarks are good for just the state that you're in, which. It's an inferior trademark because if you live in Southern California, you're close to Arizona, you're close to Nevada, you have a cool name, a cool brand, and just do it in California. There's nothing stopping someone that lives three hours away from opening the same hair salon, same barbershop, that type of thing. Mm. Right. So so you're saying that the federal tra- uh, stamp would be a, a much more... Um, I guess beneficial in, in comparison to just doing a state, even though you might save a few bucks. But if you if he if he did it in all fifty states, he should have just went straight to federal. That's probably what happened then. Maybe maybe that's what they were talking about. Yeah, maybe he's protected. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when you get to federal, you're you're protected pretty much in all fifty. Yes. And so some even if you are you know really only operating, let's say in three states, if you have that registration and somebody wants to open up something very similar to you in I don't, Iowa, right? Can't do it because you already own the rights to that name in connection to the goods or services you're using it for. They can't do it. All right. I'm going to bring us back into the salon and away from the federal government a little bit. Um, where, um, what kind of waivers or contracts or do any of those have any weight? Like, uh, yeah. like your clients come in and like, you know, or, like I'm a colorist, right? So if I'm like looking at hair and I'm like, oh, I don't know about this, you know, like if I have them sign a waiver, would that protect me from some kind of like, uh, you know, like coming after my LLC or something? Yeah, the waivers are big. They're really huge. Like just in everyday life, we contract with people all the time, right? You get into contracts that sometimes you don't even really pay attention or notice that you're doing when you get an insurance policy, when you buy a car, when you, you know, every, on like just day-to-day stuff. Even when you purchase things now, online lots of times that little pop-up box comes it says terms and conditions you're constantly agreeing to things yeah yeah, the reason that you're doing that is so that people can see why a so they're saying like okay you bought this course for me but that doesn't mean that you're going to make as much money as i do and i want you to sign this saying that you understand that so with waivers in the salon it does a couple of things one if you're doing hair color and you're you're getting the intake form you're asking about their previous hair treatments what they've done on their hair And then you're telling them these are the risks, like even with the best professional standard, the best professional care, you have previous box dye or previous, you know, bleaching on your hair. And these are the associated risks. What you're doing when they fill those out, sign that is having a paper that says they understood the risks and knowing those risks, they still accepted the service. And they knew that sometimes the results, like in my color waivers, I have them say that, you know, results vary. And if you're, you know, going, if you're doing color correction, it might take several sessions or, you know, to get your desired results, things like that. So that way, if after session one, they're like, my hair's not platinum. And you're like, well, yeah, you started at a level three. Did you, you weren't going to get to platinum Mm -hmm. starting from a level three, not in one session. And you signed that and you knew that if you want to, you know, have the integrity of your hair. Back to that, does does that waiver or does that intake form have to be that specific? Meaning like like I sit down, I sit down with you and, and we assess your hair and then and then I'm I'm filling out a form saying, okay, she understands the risk that she used box dye. Not everybody uses box dye. So is there something that's more broad that they just sign or that they can sign when they come in saying that inherently there's a risk in doing this service, no matter what the service is, or do I have to be that specific? Is that a fair you question? Can- 
Yeah, that's a fair question. You can have them sign something that's more general. It doesn't have to say box die, but one of the things that you're trying to prove in the event that you ever get sued or something is that the knowledge was there and they understood the risks and that you weren't negligent in the way that you perform the service. And so one of the ways that you're going to prove that you weren't negligent or, you know, that you did the hair process application or whatever in the same standard as another professional would is to kind of have that really good intake form, but that's something they can fill out before their service, right? You can have, you can send it to them when they're, they're booking, or it can be something with confirmation. They fill out on job form on Google forms, whatever, where they just do a checkbox. Yes. I've had box die. And then you have that for your records that you know that they've done that. And then in the general consent form, they're saying, I know that for hair color, there are these risks. Yeah. Could, could I just make a, like, just lump all risk? Like, you know, whether you had box dye or not, you know, you're agreeing to, to, uh, have color today and the risk are, you know, X, Y, Z, just a general process. I mean, in, in no matter what happens, uh, you know, because it could be, you know, someone's on medication. I mean, there's so many different variables that, you know, can I just lump everything into a general? Uh, yeah, you yeah. you can have a, you can, you can, a lot of the waivers will have just kind of a clause. that's like you know, a known or associated risk with hair color. Right. And then it'll have a bunch of stuff, breakage, you know, damage the integrity of the hair. Um, results that vary depending on previous work, you know, just kind of things like that that have all of those things in there, bulleted point. And so you're covered. So it doesn't matter if that specific risk that we're talking about is the, you know, box dye or whether it is previous bleach or whether it's just the porosity of the hair, you know, or whatever it is. That's awesome. So, um, Rihanna, you understand that, that, that this podcast is for broadcast, right? Yes. Is that a contract? Well, I mean, kind of. So we, you don't always have to have something in writing for it to be a contract, right? Lots of states say that you can get into and enter into verbal contracts. So in previous discussions about the, broad, about the podcast, I understand that it is for broadcast that I'm coming to speak about X, Y, and Z, and that it's going to be used for those purposes. Interesting though. So I would say, yeah, we're in agreement, right? Interesting. Lots of people are using guest appearance consent forms or guest appearance contracts that kind of lay out all those things because you can have a verbal conversation with the client in a salon about what the risks are. And then when their hair gets messed up because of X, Y, and Z, all of a sudden they don't remember that, that conversation, right? They're like, I never said that. You never said that. We never agreed to that. So right. I think that's why written stuff is just the way to go legally. But from the podcast, would that be enough? Like if we open up the podcast and say, okay, Rihanna Green, you're, you're, you're under the understanding that this is for broadcast and that we own the, we own all this, that, that for specifically for our podcast, that would be enough if we could, if we could produce that audio. If you go over all of the, if you hit all your points in your, you know, verbal agreement. Yeah, mm -hmm. I would say so. Especially with the recording. I'm here. I look like I'm understanding what's going on. Right. It doesn't appear that I am under the influence of anything, you know, things like that. I am coherent. Then, yeah, you're like, okay, well, I have this video. Are we it's coherent like thing, though? Are we coherent? <laughs> Not all the time. You know, but that's, that's one of the things that, that happens a lot is even when I was in my work doing criminal stuff, if you had an interview with, you know, a criminal defendant that wasn't recorded and all of a sudden it's like, well, I didn't really agree to, you know, I didn't agree to make a statement. That's why everything's always recorded because it's like, no, you were there. You looked like you were willing to have this conversation. You appear to be coherent. You understood what was going on, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. I, I, I'm in all of you. I, I, you know, I'm just listening to, I feel like I'm being, I'm in class because I am totally being schooled <laughs> because, uh, you know, so many things that you just overlook or you just take for granted or you don't think about it. And, and unfortunately too many of us, we don't think about it until it's too late. Oh, that's yeah. the problem. Yeah, for sure. That's, that's uh, But you know, it's one of those things you don't get taught that in beauty school, right? They don't tell you in beauty school, listen, when you get out of beauty school, if you want to rent a booth, you need an LLC, don't commingle your funds, get a business bank account. You know, they don't tell you any of that stuff. They just are like, okay, here's how you do it. Here's how you go past state boards. 
now go off and be great, you know, but they don't really give you those tools. And so I think well, a lot but, of people but also, I mean, I, to defend the uh, industry a little bit, I mean, I also think like until real recently, nobody was leaving school and opening a business, right? Like, like, so, so I think, they, so I think like the industry, the general industry was thinking like it, when it's time to open a salon, you're going to go get this information. Well, now what's happening is like people are opening businesses and salons right out of hair school. We literally just had this conversation this morning are literally opening it right out of hair school. So, you know, like you're not, yes, you need that information. You know what I mean? Like, like, yes, you need, you need this podcast right here because this is going to protect you from, you know, you protect you from yourself. You need a Rihanna. That's what you need. You need a Rihanna. <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy to help everybody in the profession. It, you know, one of the things that kind of led me this way is this is stuff I would have never even thought about when I was behind the chair. There are many a times when I did not have someone sign a waiver because I was like, mm, nobody ever really gets sued or that doesn't really happen that often. But being on the opposite side, working for an insurance company, seeing the salon cases, stylist cases that were coming through, I'm like, oh, no, it is happening. And when it happens, it is hitting those pockets pretty hard, you know? Mm. So what are some other things that you've seen? Like, what are some, you know, g g give us a takeaway. What, what are some other things that you're seeing that you're like, dude, you've got to, like, address this? Really, the biggest thing for CYA purposes is your LLC is great right? Where we talked about that earlier about protecting your personal assets from your business assets. One thing though, that stylists and people in the industry are doing is not really separating those funds. So you have the LLC, but you're not operating it like a business. And that really gets rid of the whole point of the LLC, because if they can prove that you weren't operating the LLC like a business and you were commingling funds and you're paying for personal stuff out of the business account and business stuff out of your personal account, all of that's still up for grabs. So I would say that's another takeaway is to really make sure that you've got a good accountant and you are doing things the way you're supposed to with your money and your bank accounts so that you have that protection. And then using those treatment waivers, like I can't harp on that enough just because it's something simple you can do. You can have it automated or whatever, but it's a huge CYA for the professional. So that's another major thing that people should be doing because it affects everything else. It affects your insurance policy, like we talked about. It affects, you know, whether or not you can prove that they knew the risks associated with the, you know, hair service or treatment that they're getting and all that stuff. Do you have, do you have any templates of those? I have something coming out very soon, actually, um, that will have all of that. So I'm going to have one for a hairstylist that's going to have the intake form, the treatment waiver. Uh, also a client services agreement, which a lot of people aren't using, but that's a really good way to enforce your policies. Because if you start getting hit with chargebacks, let's say you're an esthetician or a hairstylist or whatever, and you charge a no-show fee and it's whatever amount you have decided is going to be your no-show fee and you have it in your policies and it goes out in text messages. That's all cool and everything. But when you get hit with that chargeback, how are you proving that they knew it and they agreed to it and things like that? And if you have just a quick little client services agreement that says, I understand that the no-show fee is this. Then when that bank tries to take that money back, you're like, no, 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 wait, hold up. Hold up. My client signed this. Here's their signature on this date. You know, so that's a really good way to enforce all those policies that people are already having that, that they already try to enforce, but on a legal, in a legal way, you know? That's brilliant. We need to connect you and Michelle together. Y'all be like this, like superhero team. You know oh what I mean? God, to, for the financial industry. and legal, the whole, the, like the business of beauty type thing. Oh my yeah. God. Yeah. yeah. Cause we, uh, I mean, that's brilliant. I never even thought about the chargebacks. No, you no, know no, what I mean? And, and, and wow. I got so much work to do. <laughs> <laughs> That's it, man. Right. Thanks for adding to my plate. Oh, uh, right. <laughs> I'm like, hey, I'll, you have to do this, this, and this too. But it's true. But it's so true. And, and so many of us are so vulnerable, especially because, you know, we we own a suite and, uh, you know, wow, I got, I got a lot of work to do. <laughs> Well, that's right. I stressed you out. <laughs> that's why you listen to the podcast, so you know what work that needs to be done. And right. how how is your uh, Rihanna? How is your information or how is your knowledge about like um about like tax law? Is that something that you dabble in, or do you leave that to I someone don't else? Really dabble in tax law for the most part. You know, I went to school, so I didn't really have to deal with numbers. Law school, as they say, right? <laughs> Uh, so sometimes I'm like, okay, I need to add up what I'm going to charge. I have to get out my calculator, you know, add right. up whatever. So numbers and me, mm, not really. 
but there are tons of good tax attorneys out there that can help with that kind of stuff. And lots of times your accountant is going to have really good information, especially if they're familiar with the industry. Yeah. Well, I highly recommend that, uh, that you take a peek at what Michelle cooks up to, cause she's doing some cool stuff. Um, in I'll definitely industry. have to check her out for sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, small business CPA. Yeah. Small business CPA. I'll, I'll connect you guys. Um, off Perfect. um, yeah, definitely. Um, Dude, you have, I have I have so much more, but I don't know how much we can dive into. Yeah, I think I think we need to bring her back on and tackle uh, things individually. Like, yeah. and I know we hit trademarks, and but we could be a little bit more specific. And we hit these little bullet points, but uh, I, I would love to just dive in a little deeper, especially now that I feel so vulnerable. <laughs> 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 right. <laughs> oh. hey, now that I got stressed out, let me you know get get an outline together of the hey, other. Things can't wait for all your information about. to come out so I get, get right. it. Right? Yeah, for oh. sure. <laughs> so how? Yeah, I, I don't know where to go from here because it, it, it's. I, I we, if if you would have you know love to come back on, we would love to have you because. Uh, yeah. Oh, definitely. One of the things that I want to do is educate the industry on all of this stuff because it's stuff that I never thought about when I was behind the chair. I mean, right over my head, you know? And so I'm happy to talk about whatever anybody wants to talk about, whatever they want to learn about protecting their business, about just how to protect themselves from chargebacks, no shows, all that kind of stuff. It's in my wheelhouse and I'm passionate about it because I've been there, done that. And all my friends are still in the industry. So I'm happy to come back. That's awesome. I mean, what, I mean, there's so much stuff like we, like that we throw out as an industry, like well, you need to do this or you need to do that, like, like a no show charge or, 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 or stuff like that. But like how much of that is actually protectable? You, you, you kind of get what I'm saying? Like we, we throw out all this stuff, but is it, is it really protectable or if you're fought on it, it's not going to happen. Well, that's why your client services agreement is really important because if you're fought on it from just a standpoint of this is my policy, I have it on my Instagram page and it's under, you know, the policy highlights. Okay. Well, it's up there. Did they see it? Did they know that was the policy? Did they agree to that policy? Um, are you enforcing that policy? All of that kind of stuff. But if you have it in a client services agreement that goes out and those you can pro tip, you can have them really only fill one of those out at the beginning of every year, you know, and oh, well, kinda, well, well, every year. Yeah. On the client so, services agreement, have it valid for a year. You sign leases for a year saying that you understand the rules of your, your rental contract, have them do it every year, you know, do it at the beginning of the year, at the end of the year, send them out again. So all of your clients know at the beginning of the year that they have this new client contract, client services agreement they filled out. It doesn't have to be done every time they come in on that client services agreement. Oh, I was thinking um, the opposite, Rian. I was thinking like one time when they first sit in your chair the first time and then 10 years later, it's still the same. Oh no, update it annually because that way if there's ever like a dispute about it, it's not like, oh, that one thing I signed 10 years ago, I don't remember what's in that. You're like, ma'am or sir, you just signed this nine, 10 months ago, knock it off. Right. You know, like right. you knew what that policy was. You knew I have a no-show policy, like cancellation fee. You agreed to it. You signed it. I have it signed and dated here. And so then you have a leg to stand on when the when the credit card company is like, mm, we're going to refund this money. You're like, mm, no, you're not. Because my client agreed to X, Y, and Z, and here it is signed. Mm, love it. You know what she gives you? She gives you confidence, right? <laughs> right. Like, like, oh, hold on, hold on, snapper. You know, like, like a lot of times you'd be like, okay, maybe I won't charge. You know, like, like all that, like all that inner talk starts to happen. But, you know, you got Rihanna in your corner going like, nah, boo, you earned this. Yeah. I mean, it's that boss vibe, right? So you're CEO of your own chair, you're CEO of your own suite. And so you got to act like it. So you need to enforce what your rules are, what your policies are. And when people try to fight you on it, if you have everything legit and in order, you're like, I don't know what to tell you. This is the policy. This is what you signed for. You know, you can't do like, you don't get into a contract for a car. And then when there's a late fee because you didn't pay your car note on time, you don't call the bank and say, no, I didn't agree to that. Or I'm not going to pay this late fee because the bank's going to be like, that's not how it works. You know, and the car company is definitely going to be like, that's not how it works. And so in the industry, we should be acting like that too. Our time is valuable. Mm. 
I love that. It's my fight for our time. I like it. (laughs) Do you do many lease negotiations? For what specifically? Like... You know, like if I was going to open a salon and stuff, do you, do, do you, uh, like, like for years ago, a couple of years ago, we had, uh, we had a guy named Peter Mahoney on and, and he kind of went like, uh, how to negotiate a lease, like what you need to watch out with, with, with how to best protect your business by not signing a bad lease basically was the podcast. So in commercial spaces, so if you want to run out a whole salon or individual like booth rent type stuff. I mean, I think there's two conversations. Yeah. Okay. So for booth rent. Um, and salon suite type things. Those are pretty easy to negotiate. You've got some pretty, you know, specific things you want to look out for in that type of thing. As a salon owner that's running booths, you want to make sure you have specific things in there. Obviously, as a stylist renting a booth from a salon owner, you want to make sure there's stuff in there that protects you. Lots of those are pretty standard, but what I've seen, especially in a lot of the booth rental contracts, is they're like, one page, two pages, and they're missing a ton of stuff. So, you know, what recently happened was the COVID-19 stuff, right? Salons got shut down. You have varying different ways that salon owners handled booth rent at that time and very different opinions on how stylists felt about paying back rent or paying rent when the salon was closed. And that's something that's easily fixable with a specific clause in your contract. So, Stuff like that on the salon booth rental aspect. Yes, on commercial leases, they're a little bit harder to negotiate, I think, as an individual, because you don't really know what you're negotiating. And you're also working with these huge companies or, you know, these attorneys. And so telling them, I want this out or let's redline this or indemnification clauses are huge um, and kind of getting the wording specific on that. So your CYA is is pretty tricky, too. But, yeah, I do that as well. Well, so here's a question that I have, like, and, and by the way, this is just conversation we've heard. It didn't happen to us. Um, but like during the COVID-19 kind of thing, you know, our studio was shut down. They were shut down by the state, but like when you work at a place, aren't you kind of, isn't there an agreement whether written or not? Isn't there an agreement that says like, listen, in order for me to do my business, you have to be open. So if you're not open and providing me a space to do this, how can I be held responsible for paying this rent? Is there an argument there? There is an argument there. You have a better argument if you have a force majeure clause in your salon booth rental contract or in your contract. Well, in yeah, what is that, what is that? Hold on. Before you move forward, who are you representing right now? Are you representing the stylist or are you representing the... Uh, the 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 sweet booth owner, owner sweet yeah. owner yeah yeah sweet owner okay so let's do it from the stylist protect um perspective right yeah if you have a force majeure clause in your contract as a stylist what it's gonna say is something along the lines of um in the event of a natural disaster or um you know it says something about relating to god but like it, intervention things that we can't control right unforeseen circumstances that you can be kind of excused from your duty, right? Excused from your duty to um, complete the terms of the agreement. So what I would say is if you're a stylist and you have that and COVID-19 is like an unforeseen act of God, right? Like under those terms, right? Um, Then you're like, well, I can't perform my end of the obligation under this contract, which is to pay you rent because you can't perform your obligation under the contract, which is to have a salon space or you know open for me to do my end of the bargain. We can't really do this agreement because of this unforeseen circumstance. So that's, but a lot of it's, you would be hard. It would be hard for you to find just a typical salon booth rental contract that is out there right now that probably has a good force majeure clause in it. And then... And, and with that same clause, what if there was a fire next door and we couldn't be open? Would that would that, would that fall under there as well? Like smoke? Same thing, yeah. It's an unforeseen circumstance that is affecting your ability to carry out your end of the bargain, which is how am I supposed to pay you booth rent if I can't come and make money at this booth, right? Right. So one of those one of those clauses is like key for situations like that. Same thing with like along the same lines, this, you'll see this happen in like photography agreements, things like that. If you were going to have a wedding at a wedding venue and all of a sudden we can't have gatherings of more than 10 people, how am I supposed to have my wedding here? 
I really need that, that clause. It's, it's a very common contract clause that is missing from a lot of the industry specific stuff for us. Is that because it protects only the stylist? No, because it also, it also protects a salon too. In that situation, a stylist could be like, well, I'm going to sue you because you didn't give me a booster on it. Or, you know, I couldn't use my booth. It protects them too, because in that situation, that's an unforeseen circumstance on the salon owner's part. They, it's not that they didn't want to let you use the booth. They couldn't, the state closed them down. So I think it's just one of those things that people are using contracts and booth rental agreements and things like that, that haven't been reviewed by attorneys that have kind of been handed down for who knows how long uh, and who knows when they were drafted or who drafted them. And they're just not on the front radar of having a very good solid contract. Oh, wow. Cause it, I'm sure like a person who owns the suites and rent them out to hairdressers. I mean, they obviously had attorneys to probably to make those contracts totally in their favor. So when uh, a hairdresser comes to sign it, and if you if you don't have a lawyer to review it, uh, you're just going to sign it, and you'll probably probably end up uh, be, be, you know owing during those months that you're closed. Right. And that's certainly, I mean, that's, the, that's been the conversation of the industry for the last, you know, two years, or yeah. whatever, you know, ever since COVID started, people are like, you know, how, how am I going to do this? I mean, you know, I mean, I know we have, we have friends certainly in California that, you know, they were required to pay 20,000 a month to keep their business. So we have a friend in California that, um, she was only open for three months and then she got shut down for, you know, how long California was shut down for, you know, she got shut down for basically a year, you know, on like a 10 year cotton. There's no way she can keep up with that, you know, 20 grand a month, you know, there wasn't even. And, you know, there wasn't any, I've, anything in there. I've got a friend who very similar owned a permanent makeup shop, right? And she got shut down and they were shut down. We were shut down for a long time. So that rent kept coming on her commercial space and she wasn't able to make any money because the state had closed her down. And come to find out, depending on, you know, what type of policy you have, some policies, insurance policies, I mean, will provide protection for situations like that and some won't. And so you really want to make sure what insurance policy you have for lost earnings and things like that is really solid. It's covering that kind of stuff. You want to make sure that if you're getting into those commercial agreements, you have some type of clause in there for unforeseen, you know, state mandates, city mandates, things like that, so that you are protected in those types of situations. Mm. Brianna, girl, we could talk to you for a week. I'm sure of it. Uh, <laughs> but believe it or not, we're at an hour already. Um, so you absolutely killed it. We have so much information. Hopefully, here's what I'm hopeful for is after we uh, air this podcast that we get lots and lots of questions um, that, that that we can start to create other conversations that, um, you know, if you're listening to this and you have questions, by all means, DM us and not necessarily that we'll have the questions for the DM, but I'm sure whatever your question is, is, is affecting a lot of people. So I would love to be able to do, even if we did like a and a you know, kind of kind of thing, um, you know, we do an episode that's just a and a and just go, you know, hammer out 20 questions or something. That would be pretty awesome. Rihanna, uh, please, please, please let people know how they can find you. Oh, before you do that, hold on, hold on. I did have another question. So if I have a lease or can, can, even though you're only licensed in only, only, even though you're licensed in Georgia and in LA, you certainly can give opinions of other leases. Yeah. Even if they're out of state. I can give a, I can tell you generally speaking how this would play out in California or Georgia. Mm Mm-hmm. State laws are very specific, you know, when it comes to certain things. But what I can say is, okay, well, generally speaking, in California, these things are needed to be in your lease. Or generally speaking, from a standpoint of just salon booth rental contracts, this is what you are going to want to look for in your lease. I can't necessarily do a full on negotiation for someone in Maryland with a Maryland attorney regarding the lease, but I can most certainly provide opinions on kind of what you would need generally. <laughs> well said. <laughs> I think we need a contract for all that that she just <laughs> said about I'm not liable. I am CIA. I have an opinion about I, this, but this is by no means law advice. <laughs> which reminds me that brings up a really good point. I'm supposed to give a disclaimer when I do podcast things like that, which is just that um, everything that I say is for educational purposes. It's not to be constru- construed as like exact legal advice or specific legal advice to anybody. Um, and that 
it doesn't create any type of attorney client privilege. So let me put that out there. So I see why a myself while I'm telling everybody else to see why, right? Girl, we love you. Hey, how can people find you? They can find me on Instagram at she trademarks, just S H E trademarks, one word, or on the web. My website is she trademarks.com. I give all kinds of free tips and content for the beauty professional. Awesome. Rihanna Green, thank you for hanging out with us. Um, thank you for all, I mean, just invaluable information. We really, really appreciate that. And we are really excited about kind of bringing you back in and, 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 doing, and, doing, and doing some of the good stuff, you know? Definitely. Thanks for having me on. It's been fun. I think we covered a lot of good information for everybody, things that everybody needs. So I'm happy about that. Word. That's awesome. Miss awesome. Miss Rihanna Green, thank you very, very much for joining us on your day off. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, share it with friends, give us a rating and drop a review to listen to all the latest podcasts. Please subscribe from your favorite podcast outlet and to stay connected on and off the show. You can follow us at hair on Instagram and all other social media platforms. Thanks again. And we'll see you next time. Peace and love.